0: This is ASHA Voices, I'm JD Gray. Today we're talking about swallowing disorders in the time of COVID. From the beginning...
1: We were working without a net and we were very much concentrated on what we saw right in front of us because we had no other option
0: to what happens when those critically ill from COVID are released from the ICU with swallowing and neurological issues. Plus, we talked to an expert about how the pandemic's disruption has led to increased telepractice use for SLPs treating dysphagia. I'm J.D. Gray, this is ASHA Voices. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's Assistance Certification Program. The new certification program for audiology assistants and speech-language pathology assistants, SLPAs, launches December 15th. Online applications available at ashaassistance.org. Joining us now is Martin Brodsky, an associate professor at Johns Hopkins Medicine. He's a clinician, a member of the Dysphagia Research Society's COVID-19 Task Force. That's a multidisciplinary team curating resources to provide to clinicians during the pandemic. And he's published quite a few research papers himself. And he joins us now from Maryland. Uh, Marty, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. We're going to be talking about managing dysphagia and swallowing disorders that have come about as a result of COVID-19. But right now, we're headed into the holidays. It's a time when a lot of people are thinking about food, thinking about big meals, and the holidays might look different this year.
1: Certainly uh, appears that way. A lot of the guidance that has come from the CDC and other officials like the World Health Organization have just very simply said, that we need to maintain vigilance. And uh, right now, during this period of time, given that we've been doing this for nine months or nearly nine months, it's gotten to wear on people a little bit. So people are perhaps becoming a little bit more lax in their vigilance with regard to mask wearing and hand washing and social distancing. Right now, it would appear as if this is the time to maintain this even better than we did before, because we're seeing very large spikes in case rates, certainly in fatalities across the world, uh, given the colder weather and the ability of the virus to remain virile during this time.
0: It's been uh, approximately eight months since the pandemic took hold in the U.S., and we've seen a lot of changes uh, from the beginning to now. Could you talk us through a little bit with regards to dysphagia. What was your reaction as a clinician in the immediate, and how have things kind of evolved for you throughout this year?
1: To say that we didn't expect this, I think, is the biggest statement I could make. Nobody was expecting this, and certainly nobody was expecting this to hit as hard as it actually has. So I think that was the biggest surprise. The next biggest surprise coming from a clinician standpoint is how immediately our instrumental evaluations were taken away from us in terms of video fluoroscopy or fiber optic or flexible endoscopy. So we were essentially left with clinical tools, clinical screenings, uh, clinical assessments, oral motor exams, and so forth. And you know certainly most of the exercises that we have, all those Those are somewhat debatable with regard to the aerosol generating procedures and that vernacular that's been uh, discussed for many months now. Um, So aside from the surprise and aside from the tools that were taken away from us, it was the major influx of patients. It was the sudden wearing of personal protective equipment uh, all the time, every time. And those are things that we just were not used to, and we had to—I hate to say it—but we had to get used to it, and we had to do it quickly. Those were the the biggest changes that we saw as clinicians. Uh, in terms of the the research world, uh, it was almost as if the earth opened up, and we were given this huge opportunity to take a look at things the way they've been done, the way they're being done, the way we think things should go and start writing about them. Uh, And it's everything from the reviews that we did, the editorials that have been published. So now that we've been doing this for about nine months, we're moving more into this research phase of prospective and retrospective research, actually taking a look at these patients to see what has gone on and what we can do better based on the findings.
0: You wrote an editorial in June for the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation titled The Long-Term Effects of COVID-19 on Dysphagia Evaluation and Treatment. And in it, there's a section called Aerosol Generating Procedures Plus Vulnerabilities Equals Opportunities. I think many might rewrite that equation as opportunities for risk, but that's not what you were referencing, was it?
1: No. uh, I saw it as an opportunity for us to reflect on what we've known uh, what we are doing and take a real hard look and say, you know what, we don't have enough in our toolbox. There's a better way that we can do this. And we need more critical thinkers. We need people who are uh, in the trenches, specifically the clinicians. Uh, certainly researchers can be clinicians, but we're looking to the clinicians for some of the ideas and some of the things that they're seeing in order to implement the research. So for all the clinicians out there who are considering themselves strictly clinicians and not part of the research mission, that's just completely false. It's wrong. In fact, you may have heard the old adage of from bench to bedside and back again. It really is the case. We're living it right now. It's all hands on deck and clinicians equal researchers in this case, because they're the ones
0: who are seeing this firsthand. And can you tell me a little bit about what people are seeing firsthand right now? We're in the midst of a very large spike. What are you and other clinicians seeing?
1: So there's a number of things. I I, I think we can broadly talk about the transition from what was to what is now. I suppose when COVID-19 began, uh, when the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic on March 11th. Literally one week later, our hospital was locked down. Staff were effectively dismissed. We knew it pretty quickly that it was an aerosolized virus. Um, Began the research of really, okay, how far do we need to stand away from a patient such that it can fall to the floor, for example? How long does it stay in air? How long does it remain on surfaces? And All of this very basic thing to essentially continue the human condition of how can we avoid it if we know a little bit about it? So that's where we started. And we moved very quickly from that. And in a week, once it was declared uh, the pandemic that it is, every single one of our instrumental exams were taken away. So now we had to rely strictly on clinical findings, signs and symptoms, and effectively experience, we were working without a net and we were very much concentrated on what we saw right in front of us because we had no other option. And at that point, again, it was still the respiratory illness. It was not anything beyond that. So here we are months later, and now we see these kinds of things coming right on board. So now it's not just the respiratory stuff, it's the cardiac, it's the respiratory, it's the inflammation, it's the kidney injuries, it's all of this multi-system, multi-organ dysfunction that occurs in the face of COVID-19, addition to very severe
0: respiratory illnesses as they go along those lines. I also want to ask you about the sort of the downstream effects. I mean, we know people are being intubated. We've heard of strokes, even in young people after having COVID-19. And that's something that could require dysphagia management, right? Absolutely. In
1: fact, it intersects with all of rehabilitation because certainly of the 20% that are hitting ICUs and intubated, the vast majority of them are being discharged with problems, as I mentioned earlier, which you know now has the great potential of flooding the rehabilitation market and certainly swallowing and swallowing disorders. And in the face of intubation, very specifically, is one of the giant targets here for speech-language pathologists, in addition to the neurological disorders that we're seeing in these cases.
0: Mm-hmm. Through your research, the research you've read, do you have any specific techniques or strategies that you might recommend to SLPs who are tasked with managing dysphagia, uh, either as a result of COVID or just during this pandemic?
1: Things have uh, kind of evolved from the time the pandemic began till now. Now, past mid-May, most places are open and video fluoroscopy is back online. Flexible endoscopy is back online. And we're finally able to treat these patients safely in the ways that we should have been treating them in the first place. We just didn't know how to go about it. So it quite literally took you know a couple months for us to kind of get our footing uh, to protect ourselves from the disease and the patients who were carrying the disease as well as protect the patients from us if we were asymptomatic carriers. So for all intents and purposes, and I'll reference the pre-COVID time, I hate that term, but it kind of has really marked our lives, hasn't it? You know, the pre-COVID times till now, virtually nothing has changed. It was that two months in the middle until we got our footing that really put a damper. It's almost as if our stock crashed with regard to instrumental evaluations. And now we're in the rebound period, no different than where we were before we began pre COVID. So, for all intents and purposes, the only things that have changed for the COVID 19 dysphagia population right now is how you treat the patient in terms of protecting yourself from the patient who may be a carrier. In terms of the actual evaluation and the therapies that we do, nothing's changed. We're still treating dysphagia as dysphagia.
0: You've mentioned how this virus, not only has it wreaked havoc on the world, but also on uh, on people's bodies, that beyond just the respiratory effects, we're also seeing, like you mentioned, coagulation, cardiac issues, for SLPs, specifically issues with swallowing and communication. My question is, where do you see the role of SLPs fitting into the response to COVID-19?
1: I think I see multiple responses here. So I co-authored an article. I was a senior author on the article that appeared in Australian Critical Care talking about just simply communication. We take a look at communication and most people in the world don't even pay attention to it. It's, it's, it's almost as if it were this automatic act that we speak, we write, and therefore we understand. The reality here is when you're wearing a mask, when you're wearing a powered air purifying respirator or what's referred to as a PAPR, when you're wearing any kind of a shield that may have glare on it, you don't see a patient's or a staff member's facial expressions. So that greatly impacts the emotional and the meaning with communication. Even doing an oral motor exam, most of us will model the behavior because we're not testing the patient's comprehension. We're testing the ability of the patient to perform the function So a speech-language pathologist now has to mediate and assist staff who've never even thought about this before. How are we going to get patients to do what we want them to do? And we're the ones with the expertise to be able to do that. With regard to dysphagia, it's how are you going to get food to the patient while still remaining six feet from them? In most cases, that's going to be near impossible. How are you going to administer that food to the patient during an evaluation? How are we to approach administering food during an instrumental exam? I can tell you, I was part of an article where we wrote that the patient should be having the mask down below their chin as we administer the food during a video fluoroscopy. Once we've administered it, the mask should be lifted back up to cover their mouth. This is when we thought video fluoroscopy was an AGP. And then when they're done, we simply repeat the procedure. Oh, good dozen times during the evaluation. And as you can imagine that for anybody who was thinking about that, it was an onerous task to be able to do that. Now, uh, we're of the belief that the video fluoroscopy and even the flexible endoscopy is not an AGP in and of itself. It may provoke behaviors that cause aerosol generating things like cough and clearing your throat and gagging. But the procedure itself, you know, JD, if it were just you and me, you don't have dysphagia, I don't have dysphagia, and I fed you something, you're likely not to cough or gag. So this would be a procedure that didn't have an AGP if it were you and me. And that's what I'm trying to get at is our understanding of what AGPs are, our ability to accomplish the tasks as SLPs um, and do so safely has drastically changed from the absolute ultra-conservative at the beginning where we really didn't know anything and had to, if you will, peg the pendulum in
0: that regard. Marty refers to the metaphor of the pendulum a few times. He explains the guidance coming down from the CDC and World Health Organization would travel to the local level, maybe to a local government, and then further down until it reached the SLP. If you picture a clock with a pendulum, the SLP is at the bottom. If there's a great change in our understanding of the virus, whoosh, the pendulum swings. If it's a change in infection numbers, whoosh, the pendulum swings. And when it does, the clinician, the SLP, is on the bottom of the pendulum, feeling the great swing. Marty says at the beginning, the pendulum swings were big resulting in big changes for SLPs, and now they're smaller in some respects. But the pendulum is still swinging.
1: There's a vaccine on the horizon, and now more than ever, given the spike in the United States and around the world, we need to remain even more vigilant right now so that we can get less people in the hospitals because they will become, and they are becoming, majorly overcrowded, putting everybody at further risk when you're starting to lose staff who are infected and when occupancy rates are so high that the resources just simply are not there. So where we were when the pandemic began and we were trying to get our footing with regard to rules and regulations and policies and procedures, and that pendulum was swinging wildly, that pendulum has calmed down and we're now on looking at a different pendulum if you will in terms of things spiking far greater than where they were even midsummer at the end of the first wave our incidence rate is more than 3 times where it was back in May and this is now not just the mid-atlantic and the northeast region with a couple spots in the south this is nationwide so the pendulum that's swinging right now is, all right, how do we deal with this surge capacity? That's what we're dealing with. And it's not just the hospital. It's the population that's being discharged from the hospital that will ultimately overwhelm rehabilitation and certainly speech language pathology as part of rehabilitation.
0: Marty? Marty? Thank you for your time. I appreciate your conversation, and I hope you have a healthy, safe, and enjoyable end of the year.
1: Thank you, and thanks for having me, and to you as well.
0: Go to ASHA.org to find resources on treating swallowing disorders during the pandemic, including the latest information about aerosol-generating procedures. Many resources are gathered on a page called SLP Service Delivery Considerations in Healthcare During Coronavirus COVID-19. Find it all by going to asha.org and navigating to the COVID-19 updates banner. And we'll also link to it on the blog post for this episode. You can find that at leader.pubs.asha.org. We're taking a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about what COVID-19 means for telepractice. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's Assistance Certification Program. Learn more about the benefits of being an ASHA certified assistant and details of the application process at ashaassistance.org. This year, many of us have gone virtual with our work and done so for the very first time. Clinicians working with swallowing disorders have been among those making this change. With concerns over infection control and closed facilities, SLPs looking for other ways to serve their clients turned to the internet. Joining us now to talk about what this sudden exploration of telepractice might mean for those managing swallowing disorders is Georgia Malendrocki. Georgia is an SLP and a faculty member at Purdue University. She specializes in telepractice and is a member of the Dysphagia Research Society's COVID-19 task force. If her name sounds familiar, you may recognize it from when Georgia was on ASHA Voices earlier this year. In January, she joined the show for a conversation about wearable monitors that provide swallowing information to clinicians. At the time we spoke for this episode, Georgia was beginning to receive responses to a survey she was conducting with her team at Purdue University.
2: My research team has started a series of telehealth studies since the pandemic uh, started uh, in collaboration with a very good colleague and friend of mine, Dr. Michelle Troche at Columbia University in New York City. And one of the studies that we have going on right now, it just just started actually a couple of weeks ago. We have designed a web-based survey in order to get information from clinicians about the benefits and obstacles and really the experiences that they had with uh, the use of telehealth for dysphagia management throughout this time, as well as what could be done for them to hopefully adapt this type of model safely and ethically after the pandemic as well. And as I said, this, is, this has been out only for a few weeks, uh, so we're still in the field testing of the survey, but we're already learning clinicians are using telehealth for dysphagia management a little bit less than they did in the beginning of the pandemic. We're also learning that most of them are very willing to learn more and to use it post the pandemic if some obstacles like reimbursement and billing are resolved. And we're also learning that the clinicians typically request more training and more uh, official training. Uh, Of course, there are many webinars right now, podcasts, and many Zoom meetings that are happening about telehealth, and there is lots of information out there. But it seems to be that they're asking for more formal training in different formats. So that's something that we all need to keep in mind. There are some trainings available but it appears that clinicians need more formalized types of trainings to be available. That's what they're asking so far.
0: For years, you've been dedicated to researching telepractice use for SLPs to use with swallowing disorders. Have you seen that the pandemic has changed the amount of interest in this subject?
2: I, absolutely. I think if you look at even you know the number of publications that have been out since March in the area of telehealth for dysphagia and for other fields as well, I mean, there is a a really, really large increase in the number of publications. So there's definitely increase in research in you know, which really matches the increase in in interest for clinicians and for clinical practice as well. I think one of the things that I have found that the pandemic is actually doing and helping us telehealth researchers is to try and come up with questions that are more directly, Uh, applicable to clinical practice. A lot of the research that we had done before the pandemic was done under very well-controlled research conditions. And that, I think, was another obstacle that uh, prohibited what we were finding in the lab setting to be completely applicable to all clinical settings as well. And now we're finding ourselves that we have to use We have to try and answer questions can be applied now that we don't have any other sources. We have to mitigate the risk of the virus. So we have to find creative ways, including telehealth, uh, in order to continue to provide our uh, services safely. It has forced us researchers and research clinical teams to look at our questions and make sure that the findings we have in our new research questions are more applicable or directly applicable to clinical practice. So I think that that is actually a really, really good thing that has happened.
0: It, it sounds like you're talking about efficacy here. And I'm sure there's a, a question that some listeners might have, which is when we talk about telepractice, what types of technology and equipment could be needed to make sure this is working as effectively as if it were in person? And, and I know that your research is looking into this. Could you talk a little bit about what you found with efficacy? Because that's critical.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I do want to say first, before I talk about equipment, that there are a set of safety and legal considerations that have to be considered first, and that is true among for both clinical and research applications of telehealth in, in general. And so the, one of the first things actually that we did was we provided guidance and on the use of telehealth for dysphagia management, including all these Procedural steps as well as more practical and clinical steps. As part of the series of studies that we are doing with Dr. Trosha and her group, one of her PhD students led a study uh, during the summer where we looked at reliability. So, how reliable are clinicians that are evaluating clinical teleevaluations that are conducted with a variety of different types of devices, internet speeds, and even While all the training was done remotely, because we couldn't really access the patients during the summer in an in-person format, for example. And so we did a small scale study to investigate basically the reliability of different outcome measures that we could derive from clinical swallowing televaluations under these types of conditions, which I would call really real world clinical practice conditions. And what we found was, and this was a pilot study with 12 patients, so this is a small-scale study, but it really showed us that we were very highly reliable, and we had seven different clinicians and raters that had varying levels of expertise. So these are all parameters that are representing clinical practice and and real-life clinical practice, and are very different from the parameters that we had looked at before the pandemic. So this is very promising. As I said, it's a pilot study, but it is very promising. And we are starting to see that reliability, at least of clinical teleassessments, is it can be very high even under those very variable and more real world clinical conditions.
0: It's perhaps not yet the complete green light, but it sounds promising.
2: Absolutely. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. We are doing more studies right now. So we are adding more patients. We are also doing some teletreatment studies. And my group here is also interested in pediatrics. And I think that is another thing that has come up with uh, discussions with clinicians is the need for more evidence under current conditions.
0: I'm just going to ask it plainly. What are the benefits of using telepractice for dysphagia treatment uh, during a pandemic or at other times as well?
2: Yeah, I mean the benefits are many, and the, the simple things that I can I can tell you that are true for any type of telepractice. You know, you are really increasing access of care to a much larger population. Because if we're talking about patients in rural areas or patients with mobility limitations, it's really hard for them to come to the clinic or to come to the clinic regularly, for example, to receive services. So it's really, one thing is increasing access of care. And that's a really, really very important benefit. But in addition to that, of course, there are benefits related to the environment, there are benefits related to having patients being less fatigued, having patients being at home. So when you are providing services, you know that they can be generalized a lot easier because they're already at their home setting, using their own types of foods for example. So again, you see that generalizability can be probably enhanced. So there are definitely lots of benefits to do dysphagia telehealth, as long, again, as it's done properly and safely and ethically following all the guidance that we have been able to provide. That's really, really important. The other thing is to remember is that telehealth is not panacea, so it's not for everybody. So it is really important that clinicians are Carefully considering, you know, if a patient is a good candidate, if they have adequate internet connectivity, adequate equipment, uh, adequate attention span uh, to be able to participate in a session, either evaluation or treatment session. And the other thing that we still need to work on is, especially in, in regard to treatment, we still need to work on portable and probably wearable as well devices that people can use at the home setting so that we can more accurately and reliably monitor their exercise adherence. This is something that lots of people have been working on. So there's definitely things that need to be done, but there are also, as I said, many, many benefits of using telehealth or dysphagia management. So it's definitely worth investing in this area.
0: We'd like to think that the end of this pandemic is on the horizon and realize that there are many questions still about how far away that horizon is. But where are you hoping that this interest in telepractice and attention to telepractice, how are you hoping that plays into the future?
2: i'm really hoping that that we are going to be using more telehealth in the future than we did before the pandemic and i think that that is true i'm already hearing clinicians tell me especially for specific types of patients or so for specific procedures i will never go back i really love this way this is uh, this is really giving me more information or better information about my patients so i'm really hoping that there will be a lot more use of telehealth for dysphagia management for and for other types uh, disorders that speech-language pathologists deal with uh, after the pandemic as well. I do want to applaud ASHA for their advocacy efforts during this time, uh, as well as a lot of state associations. I'm hopeful that both from a policy standpoint, as well as from a more clinical practical standpoint, we will be using it more And as we learn more about it and more about its efficacy for different populations, for different types of patients, for different services, then we will also know what types of these patients and services are best served via telehealth. So that's my hope that we will continue to use it and we'll use it more than before the pandemic.
0: Georgia, thank you.
2: Thank you so much.
0: You just heard Georgia mention ASHA's advocacy efforts. These efforts include multiple letters to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and state Medicaid programs requesting expanded telepractice coverage. Some states have allowed for telepractice before the pandemic, others have granted temporary authorizations. You can find a state-by-state guide to telepractice policies and find out what your state allows on the ASHA website. Go to asha.org and click on the telepractice updates link in the COVID-19 banner. Do you have questions about reimbursement at asha.org click on latest updates and in the listed resources you can find a page with all of the latest payment and coverage considerations also find our previous interview with georgia about a small wearable device that could be used to provide clinical swallowing information remotely that's at leader.pubs.asha.org or in your podcast feed for asha voices and join us next week for an interview with the host of the swallow your pride podcast Teresa richard ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader Magazine. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's Assistance Certification Program. It launches this month. Be among the first to earn the ASHA CAA or CSLPA certification. Learn more at ashaassistance.org. Production assistance for ASHA Voices comes from Pamela Lawrence. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.